Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming and sitting together. We've spent a month talking about environmental issues and climate change and our concerns about the climate. So tonight I want to ask you, how's your internal climate? So close your eyes for a second and look back through the day and see if you can look at how the weather, internal weather went today. We all know how the external weather went, right? But how did the internal weather go today from the time you got up? Move through your day and then when you came here tonight, your work or whatever you were doing during the day, what was your internal climate at the end of the work day? And now, how is your internal climate? Any observations? Did your climate change, internal climate change during the day? Yes? Yeah. Joanne, you want to report? Weather report? So sunny and bright, and then some clouds would come, come in by themselves, just appear and come across. Anybody else report on your internal climate for today? Yes. Uh huh. That's a great metaphor. No tornadoes, though. No tornadoes touched down. <laughs> Good. I mean, that can happen, right? A tornado can touch down. Oh. Anybody else? Yes? Aha. So you can feel a storm somewhere. Yes. On the horizon, it's coming over the horizon, over a paper. Thunderheads arising over a paper she has to write. Anybody else? Today's weather report? It's interesting. Hmm? Way to look at your mind. Think, okay, what's, the, what's my internal weather now? And am I enjoying the internal weather, or would I like to change the internal weather? I mean, to me, this is as important as our work, maybe more important than our work with whatever is happening with external concerns about the environment and climate change. Because we really can't do the external work effectively unless we've worked with the internal climate. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Um, they're very interesting, very interesting uh, things that I've discovered in, in preparing for the talk. So um, what are the things that you, 
that you're worried about? What, what would cause clouds in your internal weather? What are the things that your mind goes, ooh? You hear it on the radio, maybe, and you go, ooh. You can feel clouds or rain or fog. Bob? Friends' illness. Mm -hmm. Political campaign issues, right? Hot, hot all the time. Worrying about who will, what will happen, who will be our next president, and what will happen. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? What? Taxes, yes, it's that time of year. The tax, the tax cloud is moving in fast. <laughs> so we predict um, severe weather around April. Anybody else? What, what else worries you? Shootings. Mm -hmm. So what, like, what caught your attention the last week about shootings? Another mass shooting in Kansas, mm -hmm. right? The crazy Uber driver who. Mm -hmm. So mass shootings. What else? Yes, yes. Worried it might be get get here late, so little. Little thundercloud, her little cloud moved across, and then either, well, you got here, right? And then whether you were on time or late, the cloud disappeared because you weren't here. So. Children, worrying about your children. Mm -hmm. So people you love, your children, especially if they're ill or having some difficulties. Yoko, you had your hand up. Toxic air in your daughter's neighborhood. Right, so we have some new worries in Portland about arsenic and cadmium and so on, heavy metals in the air. <clears throat> How about internationally, other things that you worry about? All the refugees in that incredible situation of what's Europe supposed to do and with hundreds of thousands of people coming in who don't have the European culture, have an entirely different culture, and are maybe in Terrorists are infiltrating along with them. For sure they are. And then even if they get to, the, to a new country, and then they're poor, and maybe they were hoping for streets of gold. Who knows what they were hoping for. I was thinking the other day, how do they sort them out? How do you sort out 200,000 people and decide, well, this person could be in, this person's a university professor, and this person's incredible, unbelievable job. Any other things on the international scene that you worry about? Multiple viruses. The new Zika virus and then Ebola is making a comeback, and then people who had Ebola and recovered are now getting sick again. It seems to be a lifelong infection that can re-erupt. There's a lot of things to worry about, right? We worry about terrorist attacks. We just had two guests from from Belgium, and Europe has been peaceful for a while, and suddenly now there are eruptions of terrorism in, in, in Europe, and they really feel it very, very, very keenly. So then, well, of course, climate change worries us. North Korea, anybody worried about North Korea? <laughs> bombs 
Uh huh. And can we trust people to keep an eye on it or not, or what's it? Uh huh. You gotta, right. You heard. You didn't realize until you heard. Then you had something to worry about, right? Okay. Nice sunny weather. Then you heard. Oh. Five thousand. Five thousand. Uh huh. And there's a concern now that ICE is going to get a hold of some pretty potent nuclear fuel for weapons that they might use, yes? Anything else? That's enough? Oh, that really is enough. I could give you more. <laughs> Jobs, what's happening to the economy, even though they say it's improving well, we're not so sure, right? And of course, the housing market's gone crazy in Portland, and who's going to find a place to rent or buy? And, and then, um, well, climate change, of course, the down, downstream from climate change is crop failure, and then famine, and then are people going to get violent over food? Um, yeah, lots to worry about, lots to worry about. So um, we're really bombarded with things to fear by the media. And it creates a very unhappy climate in here. It's not a sunny climate when we hear all these things and take them in and begin to worry about them. So here's a, here's a question. There was a recent survey, and I'm going to ask you the question in the survey. How many people truly think that the world is getting worse, that the world is in worse shape than when they were young? Okay. Yeah. How many people think it's the same? How many people think it's actually better off? We're better off than we were generation, several generations ago. Okay. So uh, in nationwide, 71% of people feel that the world is getting worse, that things are going downhill, that, that everything's going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. 71%. So the rest either feel like, well, it's not any better or any worse, or it's actually getting better. So one of the things we, ha we learn in our practice is not to believe our minds, right? Not to believe your mind. This is like a primary lesson in our practice, is do not believe what your mind tells you. And of course, we have one particular aspect of the mind that we work with a lot, the inner critic, and the, and the crazy things it says, which are very destructive and cause a tremendous amount of suffering. And we have to learn to separate from it. But it helps to be very skeptical about what our mind says. Our mind tends to declare things as the truth. This is the way it is, right? This is the way it is. So it's very helpful to turn to your mind and say, really? Really? Are you sure? So let's just look at some facts. Okay? So, um, is violence increasing? So there's one question. Is violence increasing? The answer is no. The answer is no. We all think it is, but that's because we're informed about it now. So it seems like it's increasing, but actually it's not. So in terms of some statistics, uh, for most of human history, 15%, that's one in six people, died violently. That was either by, they were murdered or they were killed in a war. So in this room of approximately 30, 36 people, that would be five or six people 
would die violently. But we don't have that expectation that five or six people in this room will die violently because it isn't happening now. Uh, there's an estimate that in prehistoric times, about 500 out of 100,000 people were killed by other humans every year. And if you look at the world now, it's about six to eight out of 100,000 are killed by other humans. So from 500 to six to eight, and it's less in the US. So violence is actually declining worldwide. Doesn't mean it won't go back up again, but the facts are it's declined dramatically, dramatically over time. You know, there have been wars and blips, but overall, dramatic decline. Okay, so another thing we worry about is wars, right? We worry about the wars in various places around the world, lots of little wars. If you look at the world from an astronaut's point of view and they could see all the wars as flashes of light, there'd be flashes of lights around the world. But uh, some of this is from a book called Better Angels, a really interesting book, extremely well written by a man named Tom Cheevers, who's an academician. Uh, he said that um, there were at least eight pre-20th century wars that killed a greater percentage of the population than World War II. World War II was pretty devastating. World War II was very devastating. I had a friend raised in England, and they were essentially raised without men in England. They're, all the men were killed. So she was raised in a society of women, in a family of women, a society of women. And World War, in, in terms of the, the, the events that killed a greater percentage of the world population than World War II, World War I isn't even in the top 10. The Crusaders, for example, killed one million people in a world population of 400 million. So the Crusaders killed one in 400 people in the world, in the whole world. It was much worse than the Holocaust. Christians killed between 60,000 and 100,000 witches in Europe during the witch hunts. 60,000 to 100,000 witches. Just witches, one category of people. So in terms of war, we're actually in a time of great peace if you look at it from a big view. And we have to lift ourselves up out of the view that the, the, the news gives us every day and look at it from a broader perspective and get some facts to help us settle down a little bit. So we worry about um, nuclear war. But actually, the, when, when the nuclear weapons were dropped in Japan, it actually became a huge deterrent. And that, that deterrent weighs on all of the countries. It doesn't mean that the smaller powers aren't developing nuclear weapons. They are. But so far, it's been a great deterrent, not uh, an incentive to start nuclear wars. So we worry about famine and what will happen when there's famine, and climate change could produce famine. Um, so in the 1960s, there were predictions of world famine. I don't know if you remember that, but there were predictions that we would run out of food. Remember that? Yeah. But in fact, the amount of food available per person in the world has increased since that time of great fear, 
out, our population would outgrow our food supply. We have more food per person now. And there's a global hunger, hunger index, which looks at the number of undernourished people in the world, the number of child, uh, children who are child mortality and undernourished children. And that uh, global hung, hunger index has decreased by 39% in the last 10 years, 20 years. So actually, people are better fed worldwide. Doesn't mean there's not hunger. Of course, there's hunger. But people are actually, we're actually improving. You know, one of the problems is our lifespan is so short, we can't see the improvement. I mean, our, our, our awake and aware lifespan from maybe 20 to when we die is so short. We don't see these, these changes. So we think, oh, this is the worst. So then the worry about will there be war from climate change which produces famine? Will there be wars over food? You know, that's a pretty common worry. What if somebody comes to my door with a gun? and what's my food. Pretty common worry. But you know, if you look at events that created devastation, for example, uh, the Dust Bowl in the US didn't create a new civil war in the US. Or if you look at the tsunamis that occurred, the one in Indonesia and then the one in Japan, what happened? Great devastation, but there wasn't a war as a result. In fact, what, what was the result? People helped each other. People pulled together. There was tremendous outpouring of caring. Caring, not just you know, emotional caring, but actual physical caring. So actually, as, as a species, often disasters mobilize us to take care of each other, to do something like the current climate change crisis, or our worries about the environment, they actually mobilize us to do something. And finally, what was the, 20, the 21st global summit in Paris? International global summit, finally something happened. It's slow, <laughs> it's very slow, we're very, you know, we wobble along and crawl along, but we actually have made progress. It doesn't mean it couldn't go backwards, of course it could. And it could go backwards and then go forwards again and backwards. But overall, if you look at the graph, we're doing much better, much better. What about overpopulation? That's a huge issue, right? And we can see a lot of issues are related to overpopulation. There's no question that the world population is going up. But in the 1960s, the average woman had 4.5 children. This is worldwide. And in 2012, it was two and a half. Barely, barely replacing ourselves. This is worldwide. So in many countries, as they get developed, actually go into negative population growth. So the more countries that uh, can eat better and have better education and so on, go into negative population growth. So there's a prediction that we're going to level off, actually, and then we may actually decrease worldwide population, if we can keep feeding people and educating people and taking care of people. So then there's some, <laughs> this is a small worry, but it's a real worry in some people's mind, that um, people are getting dumber, that the younger generation is not as intelligent, <laughs> not as intelligent as we were, so how are they going to solve all these problems? Because they're not so bright. <laughs> 
But actually, and I didn't know this until I read about it, they have to periodically adjust IQ tests to maintain 100 as the average because intelligence is actually going up. So that if you had, uh, if you took an IQ test in, in 1910, your IQ test for a person today would be 130. That's pretty good. Pretty good. So we're not getting dumber. And hopefully, as we get smarter, then we can use that smarts for something for, to benefit the world. OK, terrorism. We're all worried about terrorism. Domestic terrorism, international terrorism. What if we get on a flight and it's bombed, and so on? So again, let's put this in perspective. You are more likely to be killed by a deer than by a terrorist. <laughs> but you don't go around in, in fear of daily fear of deer. You're actually more likely to be killed by a deer, a cow, two times more likely to be killed by a dog, more likely to be hit by lightning and killed. You're more likely to be killed by falling out of bed, actually 26 times more likely to be killed by falling out of bed than by a terrorist. And you are 353 times more likely to die from texting or being on your phone while driving than from terrorism. So we have to put these things into perspective. And you're three times more likely to buy, die from bee stings than from terrorism. So, you know, there, we have to look at what our mind is telling us to be afraid of and worried about and try to change. We, we, we'd do much better if we changed. <laughs> if we, didn't, we weren't on the phone while we were driving or texting. We could save a lot more lives. So what about the Zika and Ebola virus that we worry about, these new viruses that now coming into the United States, and now we discover they're sexually transmitted, and people shouldn't kiss, and oh my gosh, that's really worried, worrisome, huh? So I just want to read you about London, 1665, the capital smelled of death in its last large outbreak of the plague, the worst since the Black Death of the 14th century. The diarist Samuel Pepys mourned every day sadder and sadder news of the increase in the city. This week died 7,500 people. But it is feared, that was in one week, but it is feared that the true number of dead this week is near 10,000 partly from the poor that cannot, cannot be taken notice of through the greatness of the number. So they couldn't even count among the poor how many people died. As the deaths mounted and the streets filled with waste, Londoners noticed that dogs and cats were everywhere in the city. And so the order went out from the Lord Mayor, kill the dogs and cats. The Chamberlain of the city paid the huntsmen who slaughtered more than 4,000 animals. The dogs and cats were chasing the rats that were feeding on the waste and the rats were carrying the fleas that transmitted the plague. The medical advice from London's College of Physicians was to press a hen, chicken hen, hard on the swellings, because your lymph nodes swelled up really big with the plague, until the hen was dead. 
Surprisingly, that advice did not slow the onslaught of the disease. <laughs> so we had dead cats, dead dogs, and dead chickens. <clears throat> In the end, the plague of 1665 is thought to have killed almost 20% of London's population, which would be the equivalent of a million and a half people today. And then there was a great fire that consumed a third of the city also at that same time. So if anybody tells you this is the worst of times, or the world has never been in such terrible shape, you now have some facts to counter that idea. It doesn't mean there aren't problems. There are big problems. There are things we need to work on. But this is not the worst of times. Actually, things are improving. So what we really have to work on is our mind and how uh, the, there's, it's called negativity bias. And I've talked about it before, how our mind is, is magnetically attracted to the negative because that's what the mind has to worry about, things to be afraid of, negative things. It, isn't, it just dwells very, very lightly on the positive things unless we train it to be balanced. So how we hear things goes in through a negative filter. Or what we read goes in through a negative filter. So for example, which, which information catches your attention? I really like your hair. I really don't like your hair. Which one has more power? And you can feel it, right? Or I really liked your talk tonight versus I really did not like your talk tonight. Which, which one has more power? Or that report you turned in was great. Or that report you turned in, that was terrible. You have to rewrite it. Which one catches your attention? <laughs> it makes your heart sink, right? But we pay, it's been shown by research, we pay much more attention to negative information. So we have to know, we have to know when we're paying attention to negative information and what our bias is and how to balance that. So we also have to know that, that anything that comes in, and we have to be really careful about this, anything that comes in, we can also interpret it in a negative or a positive way. So for example, if I tell you the rates of depression, the diagnosis of depression has increased 4% in the US in the last 10 years. Is that good or bad? Good. Good, because? Because people got diagnosed and treated, you see? So you could see your mind going over to the negative, oh, that's really too bad, we got more people who are depressed and are suicidal, and of course, and then the mind begins to justify its conclusion, well, of course, the world is in such terrible shape that more people would be depressed. And our society just doesn't support people, blah, 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 whatever you want to say. Human connections, electronic media, you can just go on and on and on generating this huge negative thunderstorm. Or you can say, well, I mean, this is a known psychological technique that's really, really, really important. You can turn your mind to, well, are there some positive aspects to this? Well, yeah, there could be really important positive aspects that people are noticing if somebody's depressed and they get them help and they get treated and they get better. Isn't that great compared to my grandmother's era, for example, just two generations ago? 
I mean, it's amazing how fast the generations go. I think Koto and I were talking to some of the young people at the monastery who really were feeling very despairing about the situation in the world. And we were telling them about the Cuban Missile Crisis when we really thought we might not wake up tomorrow or lynchings in the, in the South, or segregated bathrooms and people lynched for looking at, at somebody the wrong way. I mean, we have come a long way in my lifetime. Doesn't mean there's not a long way to go, but we have made amazing progress, human beings. But we have to work on this inner climate too much information, negative information, is, be, is pouring into us. And of course, as many of you know, I recommend a media fast. If the, if the news is making you depressed and upset and distraught and crabby during the day and seeing everything through a negative lens, stop listening to the news. Somebody will tell you if Donald Trump gets elected, and then you can worry about it. <laughs> But find an uplifting book to read instead of, <laughs> instead of filling your mind through full of things to worry about. And then catch our mind in whether it's, got an object, whether it's looking at things objectively or with the negative bias. We have to be able to watch that happening. And you have to watch it in your, in your meditation practice. That's why meditation is so valuable, because it creates space in which you can watch your mind turning towards the negative. You just Watch it interpret something negatively. I often say that during, I can tell when the session has finally taken hold of me because then no thing can give offense. It's a line from one of our chants. When no thing gives offense, then I know, okay, now my mind has settled into open awareness. And the particular thing I pay attention to <laughs> is when people drag things down the table during the meals. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you feel that that hurts the table, that's it's like scraping the skin of the table? And then when that doesn't bother me at all, and it's just a sound, I know, OK, I have arrived at a place <laughs> which just hears sound as sound and does not interpret it positively or negatively. It's just a fact, sound. So we need to have ways to catch ourselves turning towards negative bias and interpretation. It's so easy to do. So easy to do. And then two people having a conversation can do what we call the folia dur, which you reinforce each other in negative interpretations. We have to catch ourselves at that all the time. So a media fast, if the media affects you in a negative way. There's a kind of fascination. One of, one, one of our students a number of years ago, uh, <laughs> I put him on a media fast because I heard him right after a session. I heard him sit down at the table right after a session and declare to people at the table, the world has never been in worse shape than it is now. And I said, OK, I'm giving you a new assignment. <laughs> Media fast. And his wife was so grateful. But he, he realized when he wasn't doing a media fast that his habit before that was to get up in the morning, sit zazen, and then he would get up with this eager anticipation, I want to see what the SOBs have done today. <laughs> He'd turn on the news. <laughs> so there's a kind of perverse. Uh, pleasure and finding out how the world is going to hell in a handbasket and sharing that information with people who feel the same way about it. So we have to watch that, 
watch that because that can, that can become a negative spiral too. So not to get pleasure out of the world's troubles. <laughs> and then to know the facts. So I, 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 I'm very inspired by reading, and I want to read this book. Uh, and, and really take it in, because he has done his research. I, I saw a Q&A with him, and people were just firing questions at him uh, about his biases, and did he have his facts straight, and so on. The man is really intelligent and has really researched. Uh, his, so the book is Better Angels. Better Angels, Tom, Tom Cheever, C-H-I-V-E-R. But he talks about um, our crises are crises of invention and ingenuity. So previously, the crises were crises of natural disasters, but we respond to natural disasters well. And previously, the crises were crises of human violence against each other. But th that's actually diminished quite a bit. And now our crises of crises of human creativity, and invention. So we have created the climate crisis by our technology, which feeds people better, keeps them alive longer, has increased the population, provided jobs for people so that people are wealthier than they ever all over the world. There's much less poverty. So that same ingenuity, he argues, can be put to use to solve whatever crisis comes up. We've been pretty good at that. It doesn't mean people won't die, and it doesn't mean people won't suffer, but in much, much fewer, the proportion is smaller and sm growing smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's our inner climate that supports our turning, what can make us very depressed and very discouraged and immobilize us from doing the work that we are capable of doing to use human creativity and ingenuity towards positive ends, towards finding solutions. Those of you who are here when I did the talk on the problem of plastics, we ended with uh, Boyan Slot, this 20-year-old in the Netherlands who's devoted his energy to a positive solution, to cleaning how to clean up the oceans. And then many people, he's enrolled many people in doing that, that's, that's what we need to do, each one of us, wherever our arena is, wherever our place in the world is, to clean up this environment, which will have a profound effect on the environment around us, and inspire other people to do the same. So I want to do just a very um, short, um, short exercise that we did in... Um, at our last retreat on the, on the Parinirvana session when we were celebrating the Buddha's death and also looking at our own death. So if we look at all these things that we're worried about, why do, why do we worry? Why are we worried about these things? Why do we care? We're worried about our own death, number one. We're worried about our own death. We're worried about our, what is our responsibility and how to carry out our responsibility. Are we responsible for the problem or could we be responsible for the solution? We're worried about people suffering because we love people. We love the earth and its cre creations, right? So I've talked many times about if, if love is the, is the primary 
emotion, the primary, our primary uh, drive for being concerned. We have to channel love, not worry, not anxiety. And that's the second, the second most important lesson from this talk. Recognize I am worried because underlying the worry is love for my life in this world and love for the earth and all of its creatures. So how do we turn that worry into love? So let's just try it for a moment. So this is, this is a beginning exercise that you can continue to explore. So I would like you to summon up something that you're worried about, something in your mind that you're worried about, someone, something. I want you to feel that worry. Feel how it feels in your brain, in your mind, on your face, in your body, in your heart. Because it's not just thoughts that make us worried. This, this worry affects our entire body. We have to feel that. So bring in the thing you're the most worried about. Really feel it. Feel how it affects you. So now if you can say to yourself, I feel this worry because of love. You experiment with ways to turn the worry into the truth underneath, which is love. And if you find a way to do that, to transform the worry into the true emotion, love, then how does that feel? Freeing. Someone said freeing. How does it feel in your mind, in your body? Okay, so report in. What you said it felt it felt freeing. Anything else you noticed? Lighter? Physically you felt physically lighter? Okay. Softening? An opening? Spacious. Calmer. Energizing. Comforted. More connected, and how did you do it? I, did, I didn't give you. A, I didn't tell you how to do it, right? I just said, please try to change, change worry into the true emotion, love underneath. What did you do? Concentrated on the love, uh -huh. and then somehow that worked. Uh huh. Uh huh. It took its place. Uh -huh. Anybody else? What did you do? Mm. Mm. You expanded out to the biggest picture possible, and then that somehow shifted it. Because worry was small? Or? Yeah. 
aha, fell into place. So I put it in perspective somehow, and that was able to create a shift. Anybody else? How did you do it? Uh -huh. More balanced. Uh -huh. The worry is smaller and not balanced. And then when you opened up, it somehow became balanced. Yes. So the mind, one, a, a British friend of ours said that the mind is a disaster mongerer. Sells disaster to you. And then it likes to elaborate and embroider on what could happen in a disaster sort of way, right? So we have to say, no, I, I'm not buying today. <laughs> not interested in your goods. I really am grounded here in what's true, which is my love for the world and all of its creatures. And that has to include you, too. Include yourself, too. How are we doing for time? I don't have a watch. 9.15, is that time to end? Or should I do one more little thing? One more? Okay. I'm going to do one more exercise that we did do during the Nirvana session. I'll, I'll lead you through it fairly fast, but it's a wonderful meditation. So uh, close your eyes and imagine as vividly as you can that you, your heart stopped and you died right here. And then you popped up, so you just collapsed. Your body collapsed and you're dead. But in the course of dying, you popped up so that you could see everything that's going on from a perspective up above. So let's say you're up hovering, hovering near the ceiling, and you're looking down, and you see this crumpled body on the floor, and you see people running around, very worried, upset, people trying to do CPR on this body, straightening it out, calling 911. The para paramedics come. They do their job trying to resuscitate this body. It is not resuscitatable. This body is dead. So you are aware, but you have no agency. You cannot speak or influence anything. You are just observing. So then you see the body taken off somewhere. And then you see people being notified of your death. You watch their reaction. And then we're going to move forward a week to a memorial service or a funeral. So let's say that your body is at that. The body you used to call yours is at that ceremony, and you watch people there. Notice what they're doing, how they're feeling. 
just watching. And then let's say that your body is buried in the ground. So that body that used to be yours is put into the ground. You watch that happening. And now let's fast forward six months. So now look at all the people that you knew, friends, family, employees, employers, business associates, and so on. All the people in your circle of acquaintances, look at them and look at how they're doing since you exited so suddenly. And now we move forward a year. So you're now able to see all of these people who were part of your life when your body was alive. And you see what they're doing in a year. How are they feeling? And what is their memory of you? And look in particular at the people who are closest to you, family, close friends. How are they doing? Now also look at your possessions, all of the things that you left behind when you so abruptly exited. Look at all of your accumulated possessions, what's happened to them? Things that you created, sewed or wrote, gathered together as precious possessions, things you really loved when you had a body. What is happening to all of those things? Okay, now we fast forward 10 years. We're now 10 years past the death of that body. And we look at the people who are close to us. And what do we see? And also look at all the possessions that you've had and what's happened to them in 10 years. Now we're going to fast forward 100 years. This is 100 years after that body died. Looking again, looking around for friends and family members. What do you see? Possessions, former possessions, what do you see? Now we move forward 200, 200 years after that body died. 200 years. You still have clear awareness, but no agency in the world. You cannot speak or act in the world, only observe. 200 years after that body died, what do you see? What has happened in the world? 
200 years. And now you direct your attention to that body that was buried in the earth and there have been so many changes in that place where you were buried. Bulldozers came in and structures that were there fell down and plants have grown up and you see that all that remains of your body is an empty skull that has worked its way up and is now lying in a meadow Lying in a meadow, an empty skull, empty eye sockets. The skull lies there in the grass, underneath the grass roots, underneath in the earth, and above plants and insects, and the rain. And the sun, and the rain, and the sun, and the wind, and the wind moves through this empty skull. As it lies in the grass. If you had your eyes closed, you can open them. Does that help with perspective? That's another very beautiful meditation to do when we get caught up in distress. So I've given you several practical hints and also two Two meditations to do. Recognizing worry. Meditating on it clearly so you feel it completely. And then transforming it in whatever way you can. Recognizing the underlying true emotion, which is caring and love. And then if you really get tied up in knots, then do the meditation on 200 years dead. Thank you.